Broadcast live on D20 Radio's Justin TV channel. You're listening to the Order 66 podcast. Brought to you by Gamer Nation Studios, D20 Radio, and MapsOfMastery.com. Hello and welcome back to the Order 66 podcast. This is episode number 39 for October the 5th, 2014. Wow. It's been a long time since I got to bring us into a show, and I'm really happy about it. But with me is GM Phil. Greetings and salutations, Gamer Nation. Ah, yes. Sunday night, October 5th, and you're here on the original podcast for Star Wars role-playing the Order 66 podcast. How's it going, Dave? Yes, dude, it's going really, really well. I I had a good day today, you know, because my wife is this giant Cowboy fan. And okay. the Cowboys won today, which over the last couple of years, the Cowboys haven't won very much, quite frankly. And so she was happy. And happy wives make for happy lives, as they say. So it was there good. Go. Yeah, it was awesome. It was, I mean, it was awesome. How was? Uh, how are you? Uh, I, I'm doing better. Uh, I I actually took a quick trip to the hospital earlier this week because of my back. Uh, every couple of years or so, I have this massive back spasm that just completely locks me up, and this is the second time it's actually gotten to the point where I needed to go to the hospital for muscle relaxants and heavy painkillers. Uh, I'm feeling better. Uh, uh, some about w- a good solid week of recuperation, and uh, I I am I am well, hale and hearty, and ready for a really special episode tonight. Ah, you know why it's going to be special? Uh, I know why, but perhaps we should tell everyone else why it's going to be special. Well, it's going to be really special because there's a guy on the show, and his name is Andrew Fisher. Welcome, Fish. Hey guys! Hey Gamer Nation! Yes, I'm excited. This is the first time I've gotten a chance to do a show with Andy. Ah, is it yes. really? I thought we've been on one other together. Eh, um, maybe I maybe I dreamed it. Uh, no, we haven't been on. I don't think. I don't think so. I don't I, think so. No, I, I don't think so either. But you know, and yes, for those of you that are wondering, where's Chris? Where's Chris? Well, Chris, uh, tr- Chris is getting a well-deserved break from the podcast, and he is on an airplane right now. Jetting off to somewhere in like Pittsburgh, mm. yeah, yeah. At least Pitt- Pittsburgh won their football game, so he's not likely to get killed on the way to the hotel. So, <laughs> you know, Chris mentioned he was going to Pittsburgh. He's like, dude, how far away is New Hampshire from Pittsburgh? I'm like, dude, that's like a 12 hour drive. He's like, oh, I don't know the East Coast. <laughs> New Hampshire. <laughs> yup. What's New Hampshire? Is that where you? You're not in New Hampshire, are you? Yeah. Ah. Been in New Hampshire for uh, two years now. <laughs> so, Used to be outside of Boston, but yeah. now I'm in New Hampshire. All right, well, I guess that shows that shows you how much I keep up. Yeah, that's okay. It happens. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's New England. I mean, oh, crap, for, for yeah. God's sakes, our entire region will fit in your state. Everybody's still uh, a Patriot fan, though. Oh God, yes. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you, know, you know how it is, but uh, yeah, Fish, where are you at again? You're in Minneapolis, Minnesota, yeah. 
Yeah, Minnesota. Yeah. Mm. Of course, we can't let that go, right? How the how the uh, how the old uh, Vikings do today? Uh, well, they played Thursday, and uh, it was oh. bad. Oh. Yeah, it was. Oh. We we played uh, our old rivals, the Packers, and oh. uh, I think crushed would be uh, putting it lightly. It did not go well for us. Go, Pat, go! Yeah, I'm a Packer fan. Sorry. So I knew the outcome. I was just kind of letting fish go out there. There you go. Because I'm a douche that way. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So Thanks, what do you uh, what do you say we get into this uh, show? Because we've got an action pack show tonight with a whole bunch of. Uh, well, you'll find out here in a second. Hello there. Have we here? Good news. Ah, uh, yes. Announcements, announcements, announcements. The featured podcast of the week this week is, uh, well, guess what? We have another new show on the network. All right. Isn't that amazing? Uh, in fact, new show creation is reaching epidemic proportions here on the network. And uh, you know what? For my part, I would just like to toot my own horn. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're right. You know what? That guy, that guy, GM Dave, this guy right here, this guy, has started a new podcast. It's a solo effort right now. It's called This Week in Dice Masters. If you guys are familiar at all with WizKids and this new game called Marvel Dice Masters, you know that it cannot be kept on the shelves. It is so hot that every game store that gets it, they sell out of their stock within a day or a couple of days, and they're left wanting for more. And the first expansion or other property is getting ready to come out called Uncanny X-Men. And so I said, ah, what the heck, we're going to strike while the iron's hot. I used to do a show with another guy, and he was a student, and now he's moving, and he could never do a show. And so I decided, what the heck, I'm just going to do it on my own, and uh, boom, there it is. So... The first dice bag, which is what we're calling the episodes, dice bags, is uh, all about a rules clarification that just came up and national qualifications that are going on. I finished fifth in the Southwest qualification, so I didn't get to go to nationals. It's all right. Anyway, check out This Week in Dice Masters and all the other great podcasts we have to offer on d20radio.com. Moving on to FFG News... Uh, not much except for one big point, the Force and Destiny beta updates. We are now on week four, and uh, there are some pretty big changes in this update. Mm. Uh, dark side threshold changes. Now when you fall below 20 morality, not only do you decrease your strain threshold, but you now increase your wound threshold by one. And when you fall below 10, effects beats increase to two. Two down on strain and two up on wounds. That's a very interesting benefit for those who decide to create dark side characters. It's feeling uh, the couple... dark side power flowing through it... you, right? Yes, but it's yes. exhausting. It it's is exhausting. exhausting to put that power through you. It is. Uh, a couple other details are talent switcheroos and tree updates for the protector, the Suresu defender, the shadow, and the aggressor. Uh, Makashi duelist. Uh, they finally got. They uh, finally are trying to uh, see how the du- uh, how the duelist training talent works without the setback die. Uh, a suggestion that we talked about on our show. Just saying. 
And they nerfed <laughs> Makashi finish to only have it affect an engaged opponent. Boo. Which is interesting. Boo hiss. Night level play updates. Uh, additional XP can only buy skills up to rank 3, and the starting credit option was lowered by 1,000 credits. It is now at 9,000 credits. Mm. Uh, a couple changes to the party resources, too. Uh, for the Jedi Holocron and for the Mentor, their benefits start after character creation. So after you've spent your starting XP and after you've uh, finished off your character and actually start to play, that's when you get the benefit of the Jedi Holocron with certain skills becoming career skills and the Mentor's new benefit of having an XP reduction to purchasing the first basic power of any force power you uh, your character decides to pick up later on. Hmm. Okay. Uh, last minute details, uh, other talent changes. Center of Being is now only once per round, and a new talent has been added, and I love this name, Prey on the Weak. <laughs> it's part of the Aggressor spec, and it's replacing the Reflect and Saber Throw talents in that specialization. Grants a bonus damage to attacks on disoriented targets. Uh, and also, finally, one brief sidebar on the lightsaber skill, noting that you cannot use alternate characteristics with it. Uh, uh, so anything that needs a... Anything that says uh, lightsaber intellect or lightsaber willpower, any talents or things that require you... Uh, that have a lightsaber with a specific characteristic, you have to use it with that specific characteristic to use that talent. So if you just happen to have that talent, uh, one of the talents, and... Uh, and and you need to you're trying to use it with agility because your agility happens to be higher than your intellect, but it's a lightsaber intellect based talent. Can't use it. You got to use your intellect for that talent. I see. Okay. Um, I'm 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 excited by these things. I, I've really been and just gobbling up these beta updates because uh, my biweekly uh, Force and Destiny group. Uh, we're we're crunching this along and we're having a real good time with this. Uh, Fish, you guys you guys did amazing work on this. Thank you. This this is two years of of war of waiting well spent. <laughs> Good. You know I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you that I uh, I barely even cracked mine. I did a quick run through just to see how good this was gonna be, and I really like it, but I unfortunately just haven't really gone through it yet. But I need to. It's 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 crazy good, man. I'm 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 just enjoying this all 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 over the place, and so are my players. Yeah, everything I've seen and read, and you know, just the high level kind of uh, cursory glance that I've done, looks like there's a real good chance to do anything you've seen any Jedi do. You can still do, and I love the opportunity to come in as a higher XP character. I I think that's oh, that master level. That's freaking awesome. Yeah, yeah. We, we we really wanted uh Jedi's to be balanced against well, force users to be balanced against the rest of the game. Uh, you know, people from other game lines. But we wanted people to start playing as like badasses if they wanted to. So that's including that, I think was a good call. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, look looking at night play and what you can do with it, it definitely allows you to start the game as one of those uh Padawan learners who's just on the cusp of, of being able to do their night their uh, night trials and the rest of the party if they're not Jedi or playing force users as well they're 150 point badasses of their own right mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm, I'm loving it can't wait to see what, uh, what else comes down the pipe and, and hope to give proper feedback to you folks and, uh, and of course I'll be counting the days until 
April or May or June or July or whenever the heck the the third massive tome on my shelf will be released. Yes, it's uh, my shelf is starting to bow under the weight, <laughs> especially with all these little books coming out that I've got. Ugh, I'm telling you what, but anyway, you guys uh, stay in the know, of course, by following us D20 Radio. You can follow us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at D20 Radio. I'm at GM Dave. I'm sure you're at. What are you? Uh, I am at Darth GM on Darth Twitter. GM. I was going to say GM Phil, but then Darth GM popped into my head, so, you know, hey. There you go. Yeah, and at Gamer Nation LLC if you want to keep up with Gamer Nation business, but you guys can find us everywhere. And Fish, do you have a Twitter that the handle that folks can follow? I do, actually. Um, I'm at ethereal underscore fish. Um, I've got one, and a bunch of the other uh, people on the RPG team also have them. Yeah, go and, and, and they're okay with folks, you know, following them around on Twitter, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, um, we tweet about our games. We tweet about all sorts of random stuff. Yes, I it's think fun. I follow just about all of you, but mm. I'm not sure. I don't remember. But yeah, follow the important ones. Yes, <laughs> yes. All right. Well, you know what? We're not going to waste any time. We are going to dive right into what Fish is here for, and get into well the meat of the show. All right, boys. So we are, um, as we said before, Andy Fisher has returned triumphantly to the show. And as the lead developer for Age of Rebellion Core Rulebook, we we really plan on having Fish. We've had planned on having you on for a long time, and you know, mm. yeah, you know, we've been ribbing you since the be- since the release of the book. We, you know, but you know, we wanted to set aside a couple of months to let the the book really kind of stew in the hot hands of our Gamer Nation followers, and let those questions build up and build up, and then come forth like a Star Wars geyser or something. I, I don't know. It's it's like a it's like a volcano on Mustafar. Well, no, the whole planet's a volcano. Never mind. I'm just yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, we really wanted to give the listeners a chance to to get the uh, Age of Rebellion mechanics in play for a good bit, and, and the time has come for the Mighty Fish to come back and give us and you the Q and A that we so desperately crave. So. Thank you, Andy, again, for joining us tonight, man. And uh, we're going to dig into some questions uh, on the book. So, you know, dude, it's a pleasure. Oh, yeah, it's always a pleasure. Sorry I'm such a pain in the ass to schedule around. Nah, no more than we are, man. I mean, we've we've got a heck of a... As as, you you can see, even Chris isn't even here now, so, you know. Life happens, man. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, you know, the... um, the theme of AOR, you know, is is really really strong, right? So it's you know it's all about the military, right? And and players are really at least what what we've seen and what we've heard and reading on the on the on our message boards and our, our forums is that they're really getting a kick out of playing military style campaigns. I mean, Phil, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean we've got we've got new concepts like duty. Yeah, I'm not going to do it and rank. 
and and it really drives the feel even further home, right? And I guess is I mean we can we can start off by talking about that, right? Oh yeah, yeah. So okay, so this is by far the 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 most the, the most questions we had were around duty, right? So Ebok, yeah, Doctor Nate, Fat Reckon Tour, Algnik, all asked uh, questions about duty. And Jim, Phil, why don't you take us out, man? Sounds good. So there, our first question. We'd love to get an official explanation on awarding duty, as it somehow ended up not making it into the final core rulebook. They're noting that there were some talk about it in the original beta. Folks are looking for an in-depth explanation on planning and awarding duty. Should only the person with the specific duty be awarded, or should the team do something... Uh, sorry. Should the person only with a specific duty be awarded if the team does something related to his duty, or should everyone be awarded some? Should the duty owner have his earned duty doubled in such instances? What examples can you offer for duty in play, and what should it add to the game? And they're also looking for advice and examples on incorporating contribution rank, both as a positive and a negative. And of course, finally, most important, if duty is being used within your campaign, what should it feel like for your players? All right, so we've got a whole pile of stuff there. Um, <laughs> yeah. Let, let, let's see. Let's see what I can tackle. Uh, first of all, yeah, I'd like to say that we do wish uh, there had been more explanation about awarding duty in the book. Um, uh, call it a mistake. Um, so uh, you can look in upcoming products for more guidance, more specific guidance on that, and help on that. Um, okay. I can't speak more to that, but. You know, uh, keep your eyes open. Keep it's, your eyes on the website. In other words, it's coming, Gamer Nation. Rest easy. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, well, we created duty for a way, and a way other than XP to kind of award players um, for their role-playing actions, kind of thematically specific to the rebellion. Mm. Um, you know, it's 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 a way to kind of mechanically enforce their bond to the organization and why their character feels like they really want to do this and you know how they're going to help the organization in their own way um so when you're awarding duty uh the first and most basic uh way to give it out is just anytime your group accomplishes a milestone that helps the rebellion is a good time to give them some duty and this can be anywhere from one to ten points um and that's going to be really at the gm's discretion based on how big of an accomplishment they feel it is as well as just how fast, you know, how long they think they're going to campaign's going to go. You know, do you want to be doling out rewards quickly because this is only going to be a few sessions, or do you want to kind of trickle it out because it's going to be, you know, we're going to play every week for a couple of years, right? So it's the GM definitely has to kind of tweak it based on the pacing they want to see. Okay, I get um, that. What happens if you play every six months for a couple of years? You know, I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> that's that's how often I get to play with Chris, it seems like. Yeah, yeah, I've... Uh, <laughs> I've been in groups like that before, definitely. Yeah, um, I, I mean, like, you know, if you're only going to have a few sessions, you know, definitely hand out, the, hand out more duty because, you know, if you're only going to play three, four sessions, uh, you, you want to feel like you've made progress. Right. But um, so after those, those basic rewards that you just hand out to everyone, um, the specific duties uh, are, are going to be kind of based on situation. Um, but basically, if you guys accomplish, if your character drives the group into accomplishing something for your specific duty you should get a bonus reward on top of what the group gets 
or if they didn't help at all and you did this on the side while they were off doing something completely different, maybe only you get that reward. Um, and so that's accomplishing, you know, say you have like uh, starfighter superiority or whatever and, uh, you know, you shoot down a bunch, you know, you specifically during a battle go and get in your starfighter and go shoot down a bunch of uh, ships. You know, you're going to be getting that duty and other people aren't. But if you do the same thing in the course of, say, you know, for just giving a, giving a good example of it, the battle for Endor, where the rest of your party might be down on the planet fighting the, fighting the Imperials on the ground, you're up in space flying around with the rest of your squadron, that might be something that everyone contributed to in one overarching battle. So everyone gets a, a bonus to their individual duty, but because you specifically were able to shoot down like a couple ties and an elite tie interceptor pilot, you might get a little bit more on top of that. Yeah, you might say like, oh, at the end of the Battle of Endor, um, the whole group gets, well, I mean, they blew up the Death Star, so True. You know, yeah. campaign right. over, I guess. But, <laughs> um, uh, you know, the whole group gets an amount of duty. Everybody gets 10 duty. And then uh, because, you know, Lando, you were up in a ship. I don't really know if that's his duty specifically. But, you know, because you you accomplish that, you're going to get a little Wedge. extra. Yeah, Wedge. yeah. It, it, Wedge, is, Wedge is the perfect example. Wedge, because yeah. you were up in your ship and you blew up a Death Star, um, you're going to get a <laughs> bunch of extra uh, <laughs> duty on top of what the group got in general. You shot down a space station. Here's an extra five. Wait a minute. But it's one Death Star, so it's really only worth one point. Come on, guys. Yeah. Only guy with two Death Star silhouettes on his X-Wing. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Holy shit. No, he really bailed out of the first one, right? I mean. He really kind of did. It, it, yeah, I yeah. can't. Yeah. So, I mean, he, yeah. Well, whatever. Um, but, yeah. He was still um, there. Uh, let's see what else we got. Contribution rank, uh, I think, yeah. came up. That's that's yeah, because that, that that's one that really really interests me as far as the the whole mechanism goes. I haven't had much of a chance to play with actual Age of Rebellion. I mean, I've, I've dove into it, I've gone through it, but it, I, the contribution rank is a really interesting mechanic to me because you're accumulating this duty. Your your group is getting together. You're just piling it on, and then after a, a couple sessions, it's all gone to zero. But you have this new benefit now, so just talk to us about that. Well, I mean, honestly, almost think about it as like a hundreds place, right? To your duty, like you know, you have one contribution rank, and then you guys are building up to the next to level two contribution rank. Um, but it's kind of a a way to compartmentalize that and really make it an event when it happens, when you your duty fills up. Um, and so, uh, you know, we wanted to reward people when you get to that one hundred mark. You know, because obligation when you get to the hundred mark, it's really bad for you, and you're constantly trying to stop right. it from happening. Right. But with duty, right. it's something you, you're building towards. And we wanted that to feel special. Um, so, you know, we reward you with two things: one, with a reward from the rebellion um, that you can see in the rule book, and then, uh, in addition, you get awarded with the narrative benefit of becoming more important. Um, we didn't specifically codify what that meant because. Uh, we didn't want to dictate how your campaign is. Some people say it's a rebellion campaign. Might you have you uh, as a small group of rebels who only has a minor contact with the rebellion as a whole. Others might have you being, you know, you guys, your player characters take over the rebellion and you are in charge. And we didn't want to dictate how important your PCs are specifically. Right. Yeah, no, I can see that because everybody's campaign is going to run just a little bit different or in some cases a lot different, right? And so just being more important to one GM may be something huge and you're a general now and you are in charge of a, an entire com combat squadron another you're more important now so you know you get to pilot 
an X-Wing and lead a group of X-Wings. You know, I mean, I don't know. That's just one of those things where uh, level of importance can vary vastly between one GM and another. Yeah, so we gave contribution rank as kind of this abstract tool that people can use to tie to whatever their campaign is. You know, maybe in yours, you tie it exactly to military rank. And every time you guys, uh, your contribution get rank goes up, you guys get promoted. Uh, maybe in another one, it's just abstract importance like, oh, you know, uh, the Rebellion actually knows who you guys are and that you're on this random planet doing things for the Rebellion. Um, and so that's really up to the GM how he mm-hmm. or she narratively fluffs this out. Oh, yeah, and it can be used for all kinds of plot hooks, too, because not only does the Rebellion know who you are, the Empire knows who you are, too. And so the the, the benefits and setbacks of this, um, I think one of the questions was about kind of um, as a positive and a negative. Um, contribution rank is like your power and importance in the Rebellion, so everything good and bad that comes with that are the benefits and the setbacks, right? Like, oh, I have a bunch of extra power in the Rebellion, um, so now uh, I get to make decisions, you know, I my opinion matters. However, the Empire knows who I am, mm-hmm. who I am now, they're tracking me, um, or when my decision, when big decisions in the Rebellion fall through, I'm going to get blamed. So those are the kind of things that the GM can put on the players for the higher contribution ranks. Perfect. So you know when when we do it good, when we do it well, you know to get to the last question in that set, you know what should it feel like an accomplishment for the players? Should they feel better about their characters? That sort of thing. Is that what you're going for in terms of, you know, I feel a higher standing. I feel more importance. I feel you know just the basic generic aspects of that, but that flows through to your character in so far as you know, it, it makes for a more enjoyable, more immersive experience. Um, yeah, it should it should definitely feel, you know, it should feel like a you're slowly winning an impossible battle, right? Um, you know, you're you're constantly making progress, uh, even if, you know, you can't feel it on the largest scale, like the Empire still exists. You feel it in, like, you know, you guys are growing within the rebellion. You're making progress on your whatever scale you're fighting on. Um, so, in the end, we want people to feel, you know, like I get that extra uh, duty rewarded to me for doing something specific to my character, and I, I want to feel like I'm being rewarded for playing to my character. Um, and in general, I think our, our our kind of sweet spot for contribution rank and duty is for you to reach 100 every like three to four sessions ish depending on how long your campaign is again um but you know every few sessions you have that big yes we made it to the next step we get a big reward you know maybe a whole new starship from the rebellion oh wow and then let's keep on going you know okay so the guidance is anywhere from 25 to 30 duty per session yeah and well i mean again depending yeah your mileage is incredibly varies, right? subjective, right? Like right. different groups play completely different speeds, completely different styles. So it's not something we can really say this is the right way to play. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Yeah. What's next? Uh, uh, engineer carries with the discussion a little bit further. Since Age of Rebellion is by definition a military setting, Andy, can you provide any advice or recommendations for managing rank within the party? Now, should GMs be driving or allowing disparity in ranks between the players of different XP levels or character backgrounds? And how should we manage the chain of command within a party? This is a very interesting question because yeah. this, this comes up in just about any military-themed campaign ever. Yeah, it's I, 
before Age of Rebellion, a, a couple of years ago now, I worked on, uh, in 40k roleplay, I worked on Only War, which was the Imperial Guard role-playing game. So I've, I've tackled this a couple times now. Um, but with Star Wars, it's even less strict than in 40k. Uh, yeah. um, we really wanted to avoid, well, we, we didn't want the Age of Rebellion experience to be all about the military and all about the chain of command. And it can be, and that's not a wrong way to play. But in Star Wars, if we think about it, you look at uh, how the main characters interact with the Rebellion. And, you know, Han and Lando are called generals in, in Episode uh, 6. But, like, you know, in Episode 4, this farm boy shows up from the middle of nowhere and they throw him in an expensive starfighter and send him at the most powerful super weapon in the galaxy, right? <laughs> like, yeah. this is not a strict military in the right. traditional sense. It's a volunteer. <laughs> well, yeah, and that's ex- that's what I, exactly what I was about to say, right? Is is when when they're down on Endor, it's it's as if they were peers. They weren't necessarily following a chain of command except when Han would give the order to, you know, take take the squad ahead, I'm going to go and look for Luke or Leia or whatever. You know, that's about the only time you see actual orders. Yeah, in, but right? it's not it's not the wrong it's not a wrong way to play though, right? Um no. so like we we didn't emphasize it and I guess that's uh you know that's that's why we didn't like specifically codify it in the book is because uh it's not really the core play experience we wanted. However, people who want to play that way, we totally wanted to you know allow them to do that. So um uh Sterling actually wrote up a list of like the different names of uh uh rebellion ranks. Uh you can find them in chapter 10 the rebellion i'd have to peek in my book to remember which number that is but um you can actually check out those military ranks there and then as far as how the gm uses them and rewards them you can tie them to contribution rank or you can just tie them to when you feel it's most appropriate in your story promotions and all that and as far as recommendations on how to run chain of command inside the party um that one's really tricky because uh Player dynamics can be so different from group to group. You can you, know, you can have people who are kind of antagonistic against each other in real life that you have to kind of manage. Um, and so it can be really tricky when one person's in charge of another. Uh, so uh, I, I've seen so many cha- so many pages in so many books like this one devoted to this topic. And they're like, yeah, all the PCs need to have a certain understanding of how things are going to go and the, the, the understanding of like how they're going to handle the chain of command and a t- conversation before game starts. It, I'm not sure that that's really, it, I'm not sure that Star Wars really needs that. No, but it's definitely, you know, like, especially, you know, if, if, if you're kind of taking our game and bringing it back into the old Republic or something, you know, you, you've got like True. the clone troopers, which are a lot more structured. So, you know, it's it's something that people are definitely going to have to tackle. Um, and I'd say talking to your group and having your group talk to each other about it is the best way to go. Yeah. Um, because you can kind of play out within, you know, people can talk to each other and be honest kind of about, like, the power dynamics and uh, figure out, you know, like, all right, so if this person's in charge for this game, is everybody going to be cool with that? And, you know, kind of agree ahead of time. And I think that helps a lot. I've had some really fun games play out that way, but you want to know ahead of time that somebody's going to be playing the boss, right? That's kind of how I see most, you know, small squad operations in the expanded universe. You know, Legends. It really tends to be the guys just really get along with each other, but understand that when push comes to shove, one guy's vo- one guy's voice is is the last. The one guy says, "Okay, guys, we're, I, I took all your advice, but we're going to do it this way." Everyone else in the party tends to go, "Okay, that's the way we're playing it." Then. Mm-hmm. 
By the way, in case you're wondering, page 389, the Rebel Alliance organization starts in the Age of Rebellion Corps rulebook. Oh, thanks, Dave. Is, yeah, that is chapter 11, page 389. So, the next question that concerns this hefty topic uh, comes from Bull30548. He wants to know, now that the Force and Destiny beta is here, is there going to be a way to blend obligation, duty, and morality, or is this something that's going to get hammered out with this beta release? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, similar, you know, we may, I, I can't speak to Sam's process, but we may do something similar to what we did with the Age of Rebellion beta, where we kind of um, had a beta update that kind of tackled that. Um, yeah, I remember. But, uh, you know, it. Who knows? We we may may not may not. The beauty of morality is that it actually fits really well with the other two. Mm-hmm. Um, it because it's a personal resource, uh, and each person just worries about their own. You can kind of you can have a you know game of smugglers and scum with their obligation, or you can have a game of rebels and their duty, and then have people's individual moralities come up inside of that. Um, and since it's not complexity for the group, and instead it's just complexity for individuals. Um, it's a lot easier to kind of mix and match. Um, but we'll be definitely doing guidance on that in the Force and Destiny core. I see a lot more difficulty in, in mixing obligation and duty than I do with morality and obligation or morality and duty. Because like, like you just said, it's they, 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 they fit alongside each other and only sometimes would intersect and conflict. And if they do conflict, it makes it all the more and more interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, yeah, I agree I with think- you. Our, uh, our recommended way to play is usually with either everyone has obligation or everyone has duty. Um, we, we give other options for how GMs want to do it in the Age of Rebellion Corps, um, but that's kind of probably our recommended way to do it. Um, it's, it's definitely what we've had the most luck with, but layering mo- motivation on top of that works really seamlessly. Right. Nice. So, so go ahead. The, the next... The next large topic that we like to go into, which is one that always gets me, gets me going because I love this section <laughs> of the book. It's the first one I always flip to. Species, careers, and specializations. New, shiny amounts of awesome in this book, and we have a couple questions related to them. Um, first of all, I, I, I just want to make a quick comment on your choices of species in this book. Very, very nice. Very enjoyable. Uh, you almost pretty much grabbed the uh, rogues gallery of episode six uh, races here. <laughs> the only one of these I <laughs> yep. don't think is in episode six is the Athorian, but that's okay because I'm always fond of the Athorian. Because of the bellow, right? Go ahead, say it. I did well, that too, but I just just like the, <laughs> I, I've, I've always liked the Athorians. The Hammerhead, Hammerhead has always been one of my favorite guys. Just a very, it, it's very alien. It, it is so alien. Oh yeah, it's yeah. very unique. It's not just like an Earth creature uh you know anthropomorphized no no it, it, it's completely out there from left field and i love it but we have some questions from some folks and we're going to start with the one from happy days a clear fan of the big throated hammerheads which is why i wanted to start <laughs> with this one what is the difficulty of the res of the resistance check to use the authorian bellow at engaged range is the difficulty increase like range heavy and range light or is it not possible at all, as with gunnery attacks? Um, yeah, actually, this one's a pretty easy one to answer. Since um, the penalties in melee section specifically calls out ranged heavy, ranged light, and gunnery 
and not any other combat skills, uh, and in this case, resilience, not really being a normal combat skill, um, it is not affected by and not penalized. So you can use it in melee freely. Wow. See, that you just made happy days are really, really happy in his days. Really happy days? Yes. <laughs> yes, now he has to change his form. He's going to have to change his form. Exactly. <laughs> All right, so that was an easy question. All right, and and NYACC is that Nyack, Nyack? I don't know. Anyway, he or gets NYACC. We don't know NYACC. Yeah, I don't know. Nyack credit card. He uh, wants to get into the Commodore, and his question is uh, a little bit lengthy, so bear with me. He says, prior to posting my actual questions, I would like to thank Zoe and the art crew for continuing to inject some much-needed diversity in terms of both gender and race into the Star Wars universe. The result is a series of products that I'm proud to present to my friends and family as examples of our hobby. All right, off topic real quick. Did y'all catch wind of that? Was it a DC game or something that came out and they took Wonder Woman and they took the female characters out? Yes, I did hear yeah, about but that. They- yeah, I mean, it was a shame, but they had a really good response to it, which was I, cool. I saw that. He said, hey, we screwed up, and we're going to put all the girls back in. And, I mean, I get it, but I, uh, it's sad that it kind of came to it in the first place. But anyway, I digress. Uh, my questions, this is back to uh, Naya CC here. My questions concern the Commodore specialization for the Commander career, a spec that has fascinated me since I purchased Age of Rebellion. Was the Commodore considered for the supplemental book, or did you guys always know it would be a core specialization? Was the design process behind... What was the design process behind the talent tree? Did it have to go through multiple iterations, or were the four prongs fairly easy design and balance? Lastly, how would you recommend integrating the Commodore into a campaign that does not focus on epic capital ship combat? Would the Commodore be better off staying on the sidelines in favor of other commander specializations. It is kind of an oddball spec if you look at it. It is. Um, and actually, I can kind of talk to uh, its its place and why it is the way it is. Um, so uh, uh, when we were creating the commander, um, we, we kind of looked at the different areas you can command, specifically on the battlefield. Um, and, you know, especially in our game, there's some very clear divides, right? And so we looked at, you know, you could command on the ground, you can command in personal combat, you know, you can be commanding the troops, uh, you can be in a fighter, you know, especially with, like, the many Rogue Squadron books that are out, you know, fighter combat and playing as a squadron is important, so we thought commanding from the cockpit was important. Right. But then you have these big, large ship battles, and so that was kind of the last theater that we thought was interesting uh, for command. And so that's kind of why we chose those three as the core book ones, is they're the big three divisions, especially in our game, of the commander. Um, From there, uh, the design process uh, for trees is uh, kind of interesting. So when when I went about it, I kind of created the master talent list of everything I wanted to see in the game, and then, you know, broke it down and threw it into the different careers and specializations that I wanted it broken into. So I've got this big... You know, unorganized pile of talents for that kind of represents the Commodore. Um, and so I kind of break it up and I look at all these talents. I'll maybe put them on note cards and put them out in front of me and kind of see what patterns I see. And that's part of where you get the shape of the different talent trees is, you know, we kind of look for patterns and themes amongst the talents that we want to represent this specialization. And like uh, for the Commodore, we kind of I had this breakdown of these four different feelings 
for the spec. And so that's kind of where those four paths came from. But they all link at the bottom, allowing you to, you know, once you've made it, you can, everybody gets all the cool, splashy talents. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a very interesting spec in that it's kind of a generalist in a way. Um, for a while, we looked at doing some more kind of crazy, very specific capital ship talents that only applied in, at capital ships. Sure. And in the end, we wanted to save those really, really specific talents for, you know, later books, for supplements. For the core, we wanted uh, specializations that are most broadly applicable to as many different campaigns as possible. And so that's kind of why the Commodore is, you know, just some general talents that are useful for starships, vehicles, that kind of thing, or just general command. Um, so it's it's more broadly useful instead of this is specifically you need to be on the bridge of a capital ship. Um and as far as uh, the question about using it in campaigns that aren't on a capital ship, I think the Commodore can still be very, very useful. Um, you know, any most campaigns are going to interact with uh, starships or vehicles to some degree. Uh, and so the Commodore can be very useful in those situations and also just has some good lead, general leadership talents that are useful any old place. Oh, sure. I mean, you've got coercion, you've got cool, perception, you know, as the, as the commander core, right? Vigilance. Command. You know, yeah, obviously, and and then you've got as a as as Commodore, you've got astrogation, computers, knowledge, outer rim. I mean, those are useful. It's not like you know, it's not like you're going to go in and and be a dud if you decide to be a Commodore. And the talents in and of themselves are are, are good too. I mean, you got command, you've got rapid reaction, commanding presence, all kinds of talents that allow you to aid the party. Right. You know, rapid reaction. You you get you know do what you can to get that first initiative slot. Right. It doesn't mean you have to take it. One of the things I find really interesting or odd is that these this the talent tree for the commander pretty much goes straight down. You you don't have any you don't have a whole lot of horizontal activity. No, uh un, until the very very bottom. Right. Um, you're you're kind of stuck, but it, it that doesn't mean you don't have uh interesting choices to make. You can still kind of choose between the four paths and, you know, uh I've seen people take two paths simultaneously or things like that. So I got a question for you. Just just burst upon me right now. Commodore doesn't have access to mechanics, but you've got three ranks of solid repairs in here. What was the reasoning for that? Um, yeah, so uh, um, we that, that was actually a deliberate choice. Um, you'll, you'll find a couple talents like that scattered throughout... Um, trees here in Edge of the Empire. You know, you'll find them a little bit of everywhere. And sometimes we want somebody to kind of specialize in something in an interesting way. So the Commodore likely isn't going to be a super good mechanic, right? He has guys for that. But at the same time, um, he knows things about the ship. And so, like, he's kind of good at repairs in a very unique way in that way. Um, and it allows the tree also to synergize really nicely with some out-of-career choices. Hmm. Yeah, I um, can so, so you can kind of encourage a character archetype by saying, "Hey, now you can go out and get a specialization that synergizes nicely with um, uh, with these talents you already have from this tree." Okay, I can I, I can sort of see that now because if you've got three ranks of solid repairs and you're just trying to make like an average or a hard mechanics check, just hinging right off your intellect, you're likely to score a success. But because you know so much about your ship, you're actually able to repair more than just one point of damage. Yeah, exactly. That makes sense. 
Yeah, it does to me too. I think we've uh, covered the Commodore pretty well. Oh, absolutely. Uh, let's move on to another one, because Elias Windrider has some questions about the spy's saboteur. Uh, he expected the spy to have ranged light as a career, uh, perhaps replacing Skullduggery. Uh, and he was also had a question about uh, that Infiltrator would have Brawl as a career skill, uh, possibly replacing the second copy of Deception. Um, can you comment on, on that end, as well as the... Uh, one, the fact that the infiltrator doesn't have any copies of indistinguishable, or or you know, in, but instead it has dodge and grit and defensive stance. Uh, yeah. So the the infiltrator is kind of designed as your like sneaky melee combatant more than anything. Um, it could have possibly had a different name. I think that's where some of the confusion comes from. But um, uh, as far as uh, adding in talents like brawl or range light or whatever into the tree um well onto the specialization i guess not the tree um uh, we didn't want to do that because uh we didn't want uh combat skills to become too heavily prevalent in all the trees uh, across the game line um you know we want some choices that are um we want people to have well, uh, it's a very military-themed game. Um, we still want to, characters to feel varied. We don't want everyone to feel like they're hitting in, well in combat. You know, we want people to have to make hard choices in that regard. And that's why the recruit exists, as a, a way to kind of access combat skills for people who don't have it. You know, a complete character isn't just a single specialization. It's, it's somebody who has a couple specializations, maybe has, you know, recruit uh, other things. So that's part of the reason we didn't put combat skills, some of these combat skills, in every tree. That makes sense. Um, and then, uh, as I was saying to you guys uh, before we started recording, um, I, I do feel that, like, you know, th there are many right ways to kind of design uh, different rules or different specializations, right? Like, I think the infiltrator who does have those things, who does, um, you know, have uh, indistinguishable or whatever, would totally be a legitimate way to design the tree. Um, and instead, you know, I, I think we've created a different flavor for it, but it's not necessarily, like, no one way is incorrect. Um, they're just kind of different takes on the same concept. One of the other things Elias mentions is concerning the saboteur. He seems to think that it's the ultimate class for managing strain. Um, was this intentional? Oh, yeah. the Actually, um, the saboteur, I really like that tree. Um, I kind of... In some trees, I try to kind of try to tell a story um, for your, for characters on like, you know what what the progression of a character of this type means. For the saboteur, you'll notice that the top half of the tree has a bunch of stuff dealing with strain, getting grit, that kind of thing, and then the bottom half has to deal with explosives. And it was kind of this story about becoming a explosives expert, right? You need to kind of build up. You need to become gutsy, right? You need to be able to handle stress well. And you need to be good under pressure. And then once you're good under pressure, then you can start getting crazy with explosives. And so that was kind of the reason we have that kind of uh, strain focus on the saboteur is, is kind of the, you know, uh, the, the gutsy, you know, like, uh, guy who deals with explosives, right? Yeah. yeah. You kind of need a lot of, uh, you need to be able to keep your wits about you. <laughs> 
and have a lot of patience for that. Yeah, and then for, for those of you trying to follow along at home, by the way, we went from Spy to Saboteur, and Saboteur's in the Engineer. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. So just uh, just to make just to make uh, good on that, Elias Elias uh, went from Spy to Saboteur, uh, which is actually in Engineer uh, Tree, and you can find that one on eighty six in the Age of Rebellion book. My apologies there. Ah, no worries. So let's finish off the questions from the the careers chapter with a couple from Away Put Your Weapon, longtime listener, who has a specific question for you, Andy. Uh, what is your favorite species and specialization combo? That is, if you were making one for just a starting character from any species from any specialization in Age of Rebellion, what would you build? <laughs> well, I have lots of little combos I've played with uh, over the course of uh, building and testing this game. Um, I guess, though, I'll, I'll go with my favorite uh, playtesting character was one of our long-running campaigns at work. I, <laughs> I had this uh, Celestin pilot uh, named Dern Lum, and he was pilot, and he ended up getting the hotshot tree from Stay on Target as we were working on that book. Um, <laughs> and he was just this little, uh, well, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on your show, but uh, <laughs> he, he was an annoying little dude, and he was like right out of flight school and ready to prove himself and was just constantly, you know, like, bragging to the rest of the party and, like, trying to go do ridiculous, stupid things on the battlefield. And so I, I think Celeste and Pilot would have to be my favorite combination. So what you're saying is that the, the hotshot specialization was completely built for your character. <laughs> um, uh, yes. Very good. <laughs> Excellent. All right. So if you were GMing a group, what two character builds would you like to see players bring to the table? Again, just based on species and career specializations from Age of Rebellion. He's interested because he'd like to know what specializations you think would play especially well together. Well, um, let me see here. Uh, as far as uh, what combo types of characters I'd like to see it... The characters I'd like to see together and the specializations I'd like to see together are, tend to be kind of different in my head. You know, like I think of um, it being funny to have like a little annoying like Celestin bothering a big old grumpy Athorian or Moncal or something. Um, but as far as uh, uh, mechanics go, uh, specializations that work really well together, uh, the Medic plus the Commando, uh, those two work really well. Uh, mm. they, they form a really like survivable synergy where the commando is constantly absorbing hits, you know, he has the ability to completely cancel a crit potentially by the combination of uh, durable and um, what's the name of that other talent? Uh, he has one that cancels a crit if it's a zero or, or below or whatever. Oh, uh, or un one unstoppable. Or below. Yes. No, not uh, unstoppable. I, 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 oh yeah, unstoppable. Yeah, unstoppable. Durable plus unstoppable, and then the the medic has like it's not that bad. So when he does I get a crit, that one. That was uh, yeah. <laughs> It's one of my favorite talents in the book. That possibly wins the books. The books were best talent name from the it's Age not, of Rebellion. Yeah, but they're both on the bottom line. You have to go so far to get both of those. Uh. Well, I mean, but but if you're if you're both, you know, if there's two different characters, one of you is a medic, another one's a commando, right? Like getting to the bottom of a tree isn't actually too bad. Yeah. I really um, see. A, I really want to see a pair of my PCs come to the table. One of them with a scout, and the other one of them with a sharpshooter. I really want to see someone bring a scout sniper team to the table. Oh, like a spotter and the sniper? Yeah, that'd really exactly. That would be kind of cool. Um, yeah, the, the the sharpshooter also synergizes nicely with the tactician, um, because the tactician can give the sharpshooter like free advantage, I think. And so like it allows the sharpshooter to get those really brutal critical shit 
uh, critical hits across. Yeah, see, you cussed and you didn't even know it. Well, I was trying to say shot and hits <laughs> and... Yep, see, it happens. It's all right. We'll dump that. No big deal. <laughs> what about, I mean, how would it work? And I'm just off the top of my head. How would you bring together a spy, a slicer, and a saboteur? Um, sorry, what? <laughs> a slicer and a saboteur, just to, you know, because the slicer can do the bypass security bit and all that jazz. And, you know, code breaker and get them in. And then the saboteur can just blow everything up. Oh, absolutely. Um, I also think they would make, like, they'd make a good team, and they'd also make a good, just, like, single character. If you want, like, the kind of, uh, the slicer who, you know, slices into the system, you know, and then goes and plants bombs. Um, I think those two specs work brilliantly together. Yeah. All right, cool. Yeah, sorry, you, you cut out a little bit there for a second. So. Oh, sorry, it's Skype, you know? Skype just does that kind of thing. Oh, right. totally. Yeah. So we can move on to equipment and weapons now, and, um... Scavenger comes back again and says, in the age, or in Age of Rebellion, the description for the fusion cutter mentions that it can be used as a weapon in a pinch with the following properties. Five damage, critical rating three, breach one, burn three, sunder and vicious three. Those are indeed frightful, especially breach one. In the beta book, this was balanced against the improvised two quality uh, that the of the fusion cutter. Because the cutter was specifically mentioned as being an improvised weapon, the GM could spend a number of threat to break the item. However, in the final version, the improvised quality was removed. So, so should GMs no, no longer treat this 175-credit nightmare as an improvised weapon? Additionally, <laughs> if the cutter is no longer an improvised weapon, what skill should a character use to wield it as a weapon? <laughs> Oh, I definitely, due to its nature, I definitely call it an improvised weapon. Um, yeah, it's, I, you know, I, it, it, it's not part of the weapons section, therefore, you know, it's kind of improvised, right? So, I, I, I would classify it as such, even though it doesn't state in the rules. So, I, I would say it, all of those rules apply to the fusion cutter. Okay, um, I think and, that's what GMs everywhere were hoping for you to say. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, you know, it's 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 just it's a it's a tool that can can be used in a tight spot as a pretty potent weapon, but it's not something people would carry around with them, right? And so if, if GMs see like this getting abused by a player who decides they're going to be the bounty hunter known for running people down with dual fusion cutters, um, you can definitely feel free to kind of throw disadvantages out um, for using a mechanics tool as a weapon. You know, like uh, you roll a despair on... Uh, on your check and you accidentally light yourself on fire because this thing isn't meant to be used this way or like <laughs> a well-placed shot with a triumph blows up the uh, fuel tank on the fusion cutter and uh, it's an equivalent of a thermal detonator going off in your hand or something. Well, maybe not quite that bad, but maybe just a frag grenade. Gotcha. Still be bad. Yeah, of course, you know, and that's one of the things too, is that you're, you're, you're going to, as a GM, you're going to get min maxers all the time and someone's going to, find this and try to use it and that's when you know as a gm of course you've got to make the call as to whether or not was this used and, and is it going to be abused and set the boundaries in advance for saying hey this is an improvised weapon so yeah it's not in the weapons it's not in the weapons catalog so to speak it's not in that list of weapons so it's an improvised weapon in my mind i mean you said it 
Yeah, those stats are just kind of thrown in there as kind of a bonus for like, hey, if this happens, here's what you use. So like, just, feel yeah. free to be become creative if it becomes abusive. Um, yeah, exactly. Phil, are you back with us? Yeah, I'm back. Yeah, see, Phil's having uh, internet issues there. Yep, don't know why, but uh, at least I seem to be asking my questions before it drops the stream, so it's at least considered that way. That's true, that's true. And see, I, I just happened to look over and notice you disappear and was able to get you right back. Uh, we're at Starships if you want to go, buddy. <laughs> my favorite yes, chapter. Yes, I knew book. it. <laughs> oh, man, you give us all kinds of wicked Rebellion-era vehicles in this book, along with some new rules for Starship combat and other scenarios. Um, bravo on your choices of selections. Thank you for, for not making us wait a book or two for the A-Wing, the B-Wing, the Interceptor, and the Defender. Ugh. Oh yeah, we wanted to have kind of the the classic X-wing cast of ships, you know, available right up front. I so appreciate that, and I'm also I also find it awesome to find out that the uh, Gonzadi class cruiser can apparently carry four Tie fighters. Yes. <laughs> what a perfect example of the uh, of the landing bay uh, option for uh, for the Gonzadi cruiser shown in, Rebe- in uh, Star Wars Rebels on Friday night. Ah. Yeah, the- that's a good point, actually. Yeah, I like the the landing bay option to get those TIE fighters attached to the bottom. It was really very cool. I'm going to have to abuse the hell out of that. <laughs> now, this, the, <laughs> the, I, I, that was really when I, I when, and this is gets into post-show or whatever, but when I saw that ship on, on um, I'm sure you were watching the same thing, right? Spark of Rebellion. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's oh, really cool to have those things just attached like that. Uh, anyway. It, it totally makes sense. It's it's great. It's this little ship that you know, this little like barely bigger than uh, barely bigger than a freight transport, and it's uh, carrying four ties, and it's got them on external racks. Totally makes sense. Yeah, I remember when we first saw that in one of the trailers. You know, we're all uh, on our team at at Fantasy Flight, and we're all just like, "Is this a new ship?" And then you know, we're like, "No, that's totally the Gazani." What is it doing with Tie Fighters stuck to it? <laughs> <laughs> Damn it! Rewrite. You don't have to rewrite it. It's perfect. You can, now you guys can put it in some future product. It's like, oh, look, here's the up, here, here's the improved Gonzati Cruiser, the Imperial Official with the optional TIE Fighters attached. It's got four customization points. can totally do that. <laughs> so, as far as questions from the listening public, the first question comes from us from Darth Bad, who is interested in chase mechanics, and he's got a lengthy question for us. Uh, devs, please help me with a chase combined with terrain features and help me understand how this works. Uh, he wants to use the two examples in the book on page 254 and 255, except pretend that the sand crawler is a starship with the same speed and silhouette for quick example. It says on page 255 in a chase sidebar that you compare the total successes. We will say that this is a heavily traveled route approaching a planet, so there will be a need for a piloting space checks for both pilots to show for the increased chances of something bad happening. With a difficulty dice pool of a TIE fighter of three difficulty dice and two uh, challenge dice, it would be pretty hard to get successes. But for the sake of this example, we'll say that the TIE fighter gets a net success of one. The flying sandcrawler-esque ship, which we'll just call a, a light freighter because that fits, will have a much better chance of success with a dice pool of just one difficulty die and one challenge die. Let's say he ends up with three successes. 
Our starships begin at long range from each other, so with Raw, even though the ship that flies way faster managed to successfully navigate the traffic obstacles by getting a successful piloting check, the slow-moving ship actually moves one range band away, because he had more successes. How would I explain this to my players? I asked because something very similar happened, I didn't really have an answer that made sense. How does slowing down make it easier to catch up to a faster ship? Besides the scenario that the faster ship fails its check and maybe wrecks it. That's a good question. Um, and uh, actually, to kind of give some insight into this, I'll kind of talk about how the chase rules came about. Um, the chase rules were actually a product of uh, sh two ships that are the same speed chasing each other, uh, just mechanically, uh, being a bit uninteresting. Um, because we didn't want to work a ton of complexity into the base rules, you know, we didn't want to make this specific you know, edge case really interesting because it could end up bloating the starship rules, which are already you know, a lot to track. So uh, what we did is we kind of added in these chase rules to be like, you know, if you've got two ships at the same speed chasing each other, here's how to make it cinematic and cool using the dice system. Um, so I, I think a good answer would be uh, to think about the chase rules as kind of this exception. Use it when, use these rules when you have two ships that are the same speed and you want to make it an exciting, you know, riveting scene for your players. But if your ships are different speeds, you can actually just use the normal uh, structured time rules for starships. Um and just use the normal maneuvering that starships get, um, and you'll be able to uh, have the faster ship move more range bands um, and the slower ship not able to do so. And so you can kind of simulate that chase of with very, very different speed ships just using our normal combat rules. Hmm. Very nice. Um, Swiftdraw has a question. He's curious about the backstory of the Temple-class heavy freighter. Why is that, instead of something like a Star Galleon or a BFF-1, both being a nice art piece on the preceding page, or even just calling it a modified Nebulon B frigate? Um, I think the Temple class is what? Is that, isn't that in the, uh, the adventure in the back? Yeah, yeah, very last chapter, chapter 13, I think. Um, it takes yep, place yep, there it is. Yep, on board a Temple class. Um, yeah, so we, uh, um, the writer for the adventure, I believe it was uh, Gary Asselford, um, he actually uh, created that ship himself. Um, and, you know, it ended up being very similar looking to the Neb-B because, you know, we wanted it to be from the same manufacturer and everything. Um, but the reason we kind of created a whole new ship is that um, it allows the writer uh, to kind of structure the adventure how they want it to be structured. You know, uh, in this case, you know, having that, that skinny spine with these different, like, compartments um, was kind of what he wanted for what he was doing um and you know these other ships have uh you know very varying layouts that may have you know made the structure change the structure of the, the adventure so uh you know gary created um the ship that was best for the story he wanted to tell and so that's why we created that new ship instead of going with uh, an established model sounds good uh rogue corona has a question why were there only? Why is there only one Silhouette Six sized capital ship included in the core book? There are at least three ships from each of the Silhouette Five, Seven, and Eight, so he finds the shortage of Silhouette Six ships a little odd. Yeah, I mean it, it is a little uh, strange. I think the, what it, it's Neb B, right? Who's all alone as our only Silhouette Six ship? Um, lonely frigate. Yeah, poor Neb B. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
Well, uh, when we set out to to create the list of ships we wanted to, uh, Jason Marker is our the writer who wrote all our ships chapter for us. Um, we we created we you know, we have limited space in the core rule book, so we wanted to kind of choose a nice spread of iconic ships um, for people. You know, the, the ships we think people would want to see in the book. Um, mm-hmm. And so, more than trying to find like a very very even spread across all silhouettes, we wanted to kind of create a base for like what is the GM? What are GMs going to look for? Uh, when they're creating their adventure, what do they want their players to encounter? What iconic ships do they want them to see? Um, and so just not many ships landed in Silhouette 6, in, in the Silhouette 6 category, uh, as far as that that's concerned. And we had one, so, you know, we felt like we have that part of the curve, and it's just a spot that you can fill in with supplements later down the road. Yeah, because, I mean, you give us the Lancer, which is the anti-starfighter gunship for the Empire. You give us the old Dreadnought, the interdictor cruiser, and it's non- uh, interdiction version, the Vindicator, the Imperial One. You even give us the some some, some super star destroyers as well with the Praetor Two class. Yeah, um, t- totally makes sense. You know that the, 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 there aren't many other iconic ships. I mean, you're right, they're out there, but when you're going for the core book, makes much more sense to save those for later. Oh yeah, and we wanted to cover so many ships. <laughs> I think when. <laughs> When Jason and I first started working together on this chapter, he came to me and he was just like, I want to do all these ships. And he had this immense list. And I think we got less than half of his original list into the final book. Um, he just had so many ships he wanted to write up. But the good news is um, he'll get to work on them in future books. See? <laughs> See? There you go. Yeah. Okay. Um, some would call this the elephant in the room. It's certainly one that spawned the 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 one of the hottest and most snipe-filled threads on your forums. <laughs> There's been some dispute on the Sentinel Transport and Age of Rebellion. The stats given in the beta book are very much different than those in the final product. The final product does not match well with the description given for the ship or its previous iterations. It seems the stats closer resemble the Lambda Shuttle. Which book has the correct write-up for the Sentinel Transport, the beta, or the core rulebook? The, our listener Scavenger really wants to know. Oh, I don't think uh, Scavenger is the only one. <laughs> um, it is a mistake. Uh, I have no idea how it happened. It's really weird. Um, but it is a mistake. Uh, the stats in the beta are correct. And uh, for all the users who did not ha- have the beta, it will be fixed in reprints and in the errata that will be coming out at some point. So There you go. Yeah, it's like it's weird. It's like the stats are there and they're okay, but the write-up is cut and paste. Well, it, it, yeah, it's really weird because uh, between the beta and this core rule book, like cutting and pasting doesn't really occur. So no idea what happened there. And it's an unfortunate error. Sometimes they happen. Um, but we will do everything we can to fix it. Excellent. Yoshihayu. Um, yeah, Yoshihayu, who folks may hear a little bit later in the show, had a, to- had a ton of Starship-related questions for you. So buckle in. I'm There's ready. a significant body of Star Wars lore surrounding the TIE Defender, and it's always presented as an extremely fast and maneuverable fighter, compa- comparable to the TIE Interceptor or the A-Wing, depending on the source. I was somewhat surprised to see that the Age of Rebellion TIE Defender was given the same maximum speed as the relatively slow and lumbering Y-Wing. Is the maximum speed listed for the TIE Defender an intentional change? And if so, what was the intent or design concept behind the way it was represented in Age of Rebellion? 
Was there a specific niche that the defender was modified to fill that designers didn't feel could be fulfilled by another craft, specifically the Alpha Class XG-1 Starwing, commonly known as the Assault Gunboat? Um, well, yeah, the uh, yeah the defender is an interesting topic. Um, you know, it, it's kind of it's always represented this kind of weird place in the expanded universe. Um, it's you know, it was kind of the ultimate ship from TIE Fighter, I think, is where it originally came from. Yes, um, you know, it was. It, yep. <laughs> and so it's kind of always been this god fighter, right? Um, <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs> um, so we've, uh, you know, we made some choices, and it's not always been uh, consistently represented. Um, well, well, it, you know, has, um, it, it's, it's fluff, you know, is very clear. It, mechanically, it's been very different in a lot of different sources, especially recently, even... Uh, even with like our X-wing miniatures game, um, and so you know we we took some freedom on how we interpreted it, um, and we wanted it to kind of mechanically uh, represent some interesting choices to be made for the GM and what he wants to field, um, and so that's 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 why um, we we made the alterations we did. So it was definitely a design choice by you guys. Yeah, I mean it's one of those things that like you know we we kind of. We made some choices, and we we probably overcompensated in some areas. Um, but it is, um, it is what it is, right? Fair enough. Sure. And I suppose that you, if someone, if a GM really wanted to, there's no reason they couldn't bump that speed factor from four up to five or six. Oh yeah, we always encourage house rules. Um, though if you were going to do that, I'd recommend you bump the price too. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah, you know, and maybe and maybe with a backstory that they you know they took out some of the armament or something to make it faster, and so drop that hit threshold down from ten to eight or something. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, Yoshihayu, Yoshihayu's next question: the encumbrance, capacity, and weapon statistics for the Sentinel landing craft. Oh, we already we already we already went over this. Yeah, we yeah, already I, went over I, this. Yeah, this is covered. That one was covered. All right, my apologies. Let's move on to his next question. <laughs> Age Rebellion, Core Rulebook, page 25, Attempting an Impossible Task, adds a total of five difficulty dice to the die pool. Same as a formidable task, and requires the expenditure of a destiny point to even attempt. On page 171, the rules are given for the tractor weapon quality. Several cap- several capital ships in Chapter 7 have heavy tractor beams, with a tractor rating of 6. This has been the subject of significant discussion and confusion on the FFG forums. How is the difficulty of this check supposed to be handled? Is it an impossible task, which uses up five difficulty dice and requires the expenditure of a destiny point to try to break? Is it a dice pool with six difficulty dice? Or is it a dice pool with four difficulty dice and one challenge die? This last interpretation assumes a cap of five difficulty dice in the die pool and upgrades the difficulty of the check using the upgrading more dice than available rules on page 28 and 29 of the core rulebook. So how do you guys want us to handle tractor rating of six? Yeah, this is uh, actually a really good question. Um, uh, well, short answer is uh, just add six difficulty dice. Um, the long answer is kind of, um, you know, we've, as, as the games have moved on, you know, we've, we've kind of outgrown, well, I wouldn't say outgrown, but moved slightly past some of the original difficulty descriptions. And while impossible tasks still stand, um, you know, we have, there's, there's many ways that you can end up with six difficulty dice. Hang on, sorry, my cats are fighting right behind I me. I heard that. How many creatures are involved in this melee? J- just two. 
they're just real angry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Uh, um, anyway, uh, there's lots of other ways you can get uh, over five difficulty dice. Uh, well, maybe not lots, but for example, uh, opposed checks. You can end up, you know, if you have somebody who's really got really high stats, you could end up with six difficulty dice. So in the same That's way, true. Um, the tractor six just adds six difficulty dice. Okay, that's fair enough. Very fair. Uh, okay, so you know what? Darth Pseudonym jump, uh, humps, hops on the uh, the tractor train with Yoshi, and um, he says, actually, that brings up another tractor beam question. I guess he read the first one. Mm-hmm. The tractor quality doesn't appear to take into account the bulk of the ships involved, so surely a Star Destroyer isn't capable of tractoring and holding another Star Destroyer with the same escape difficulty as, say, a YT freighter. Surely a Corvette-mounted tractor beam can't hold back a Star Destroyer that doesn't want to be towed, regardless of the pilot check involved. I'm thinking maybe there should be something about the ships reducing the tractor quality by one for each silhouette above five, or some similar rule. Um, f- so, yeah, for simplicity, um, that, yeah, that rule does not exist. Um, basically, tractors just work as they do. Um, and, you know, if you want to try to kind of, like, you know, grab onto each other in two different Star Destroyers. Uh, um, rules is written. You can go ahead and do that. Um, but as a GM, uh, it's in your power to kind of decide what a tractor beam would work on and w- wouldn't. Um, and since it can be kind of narrative, we encourage you to you know, decide what it does and does not work on at your leisure. Right. Oh, yeah, and you can allow it. Hey, yeah, your tractor beam grabs on, but guess what? The ship is just too damn big, and he pulls away. Yeah, or he pulls you with it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Congratulations, you've got it, and now you're going with the Star Destroyer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, see, Isaac Isaac Newton is in the driver's seat once again. <laughs> uh, the last question we have comes from Elias Windrider, another longtime listener who had other questions in this show, but also wants to have a question, uh, wants an answer for the A wing. Why does the A-Wing have a strain threshold of 6 compared to the TIE Interceptors of 10? I always thought it was as being considerably more advanced than the TIE Interceptors. The 6 strain prevents an A-Wing at rest from doing a punch-it maneuver. It's hard to imagine that this was intentional. That would use up all of its strain and leave the A-Wing dead in the water, or the void in this case. Um, yeah, actually, uh, well, technically, uh... I'm gonna put on my put, put on my nerd my nerd glasses here. Well, technically, uh, <laughs> it can punch it um, because uh, you don't uh, go dead in the water or dead in the void until uh, you exceed your system strain threshold. So mm-hmm. you uh, you can punch it, and you're just barely there. Um, <laughs> so you you kind of just might be a little ill advised. Uh, <laughs> um, but the reason uh, they have kind of a differentiated um, system strain threshold is, uh, well, the TIE Interceptor um, has is, is supposed to kind of have these powerful solar ionization reactors on it for special equipment and stuff. Um, and so kind of the extra system strain is partially to represent those. Also, in our time period, which is, um, I believe, kind of between Episode 4 and Episode 5, uh, the A-Wing is still kind of experimental tech. So, you know, perhaps a better developed A-Wing, if, if you're playing you know, a few years down the, uh, down the line, might have a better system strain threshold, and you can feel free to do that. But in our time period, this is the A-wing they're working with. Yeah, there's been some there. There's some comments in the EU that some planets are building these things out of wood. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not lying. 
Hey, but you know, the TIE Interceptor is just badass. It is. It is totally badass. I mean, e- even if you read the fluff, it, it kind of explains it away, too. You know, the, the missile with a man in it, by dubbed, dubbed so by its test pilots, and it's a very <laughs> fragile fighter. Yeah, you know, and you, and that's that's indicative by the the hit the the threshold the hit point threshold that it's got. You know, I mean, it's a it's a glass rocket. Mm-hmm. I think that pretty much wraps up uh, starships. What do you think, Dave? I think so too, and that leaves the force. Mm, the mm, force. Yes, yes, yes. We had a couple questions about the force. Uh, Rakadios has a good question. Even with Force and Destiny beta out. Force-sensitive emergent remains one of the cheapest out-of-specialty ways to pick up the plus-one force rating talent. What led to the decision to make the force rating more accessible compared to the Exile? And what what is Exile good for anymore? <laughs> That's kind of mean <laughs> to the poor Exile. I know! Um, <laughs> um, well, uh, thematically, part of the reason that uh, it's easier to get to um, is that the emergent, you know, is a brand new force sensitive. Um, you know, it's somebody who just discovered their force sensitivity and so is more likely to kind of grow faster than some the exile who has probably been known their force sensitive for quite some time. Um, and, you know, isn't like as, you know, it, it's Obi-Wan versus Luke, right? Obi-Wan is who he is, right? And like he could, you know, push himself further and gain more power, but Luke is more likely to do so because he's young and ambitious. And, you know, he just discovered his powers. So that's kind of part of the reason behind why it's easier to get to. And I do think the Exile is still useful. Um, the Exile has things the Emergent doesn't, like Sixth Sense, Superior Reflexes. Those extra mm-hmm. points of defense are really good. Hell yeah. Good call and good, good points there. Yeah. Um, and that's just the way you're right. It's the way the Emergent feels. I, I like the I like how emergent feels. It makes sense that you get the force rating a lot faster because you don't you don't get those combat boosts that Exile gave you. Yeah, it's all balanced yep. in my opinion. You know, one way or the other. Um, they're very they're very similar trees in many ways. Um, and we kind of that was intentional, right? We wanted both the ways to get to become force sensitive outside of Force and Destiny to kind of feel similar, um, and then Force and Destiny to be you know exploring the full wonders of the Force. And they also synergize with each other pretty well, too. I mean, you've got a bunch of talents in that you can only ever take once. So if you buy into Emergent or Exile and then you take the other one later on, it can actually, you can jump over a lot of things in the talent and, and get to certain other talents that the other spec lacks faster. Yeah, you can, you can rush through, maybe try to rush to one of those force ratings even. Yeah. Uh, other question from the force chapter comes from Bull30548. He finishes us out with the following. I have a player who wants to access the new powers from this from the new Force and Destiny beta. Is this okay to do with an Age of Rebellion Force Emergent? Oh, it's absolutely okay to do. Though I, I'd recommend asking your GM first. It's always up to your GM. So, <laughs> um, ne- We would never go over your GM's head. Uh, but we've designed all these games to be uh, 100% compatible. Uh so, like, the species, the specializations, the force powers, the equipment, vehicles, adversaries, all of them uh, can be brought between the games effortlessly. Um, so, you know, feel feel free to go grab any of those force powers that you want, assuming you have the prerequisites. Yeah, but you've also designed them to sort of fit within their, their, their realm and their theme as well. I mean, you've got Age of Rebellion, which gives you foresee, emergent, and move, three things that Luke does in Empire. 
and you've already sort of hinted that the Force Emergent is sort of the Luke Skywalker Force spec. Um, yes, yes, we definitely thematically chose the ones for that game line, um, but we don't want to, like, restrict people. We, we kind of chose the few Force powers that felt most appropriate to that game experience um, to kind of get the, get people started. But, you know, it's it's a wide universe, and I, I wouldn't want to limit people who want to explore it. No, of course not. Yeah, that sounds good. Ask your GM, bottom line, always. <laughs> yep, always ask your GM first. Do not do not go to your GM and say, "Well, Andy Fisher said I can totally do this." So, <laughs> no, they totally should do that. They should absolutely <laughs> do that, and then blame you. Yeah. All right, so we've got a new listener bit that we want to uh, debut here, and uh, it, it's it is called Jex's Diner, and we're particularly proud to introduce this new little bit. It's from Jester's Loose Six One Eight and Yoshi Yahoo. They take us on a real cool narrative journey into Dex's Dine, Jex's Diner, where characters from around the galaxy come to Jex's for a hot cup of calf and some conversation. And this segment focuses on providing listeners with ideas for plot hooks and cool characters for your games. And it's communicated via an in-universe style, so it makes it pretty, uh, well, pretty fun to listen to, quite frankly. And they've done a great job. So let's have a listen. This is about eight minutes, and we'll see you guys on the other side. Welcome to Jex's Diner, best calf in the mid-rim. Would you like a booth and tape? Booth, please. Sure thing, Puddin. How's this one for you? Actually, I think I'll take that one in the corner over there. Oh, I'm sorry. There's someone sitting there already, sir. It's okay. He's a friend of mine. Say that a little louder, why don't you? Aren't you a little bothered, Ray of Star Sign? Call, call me Rihanna. Oh, Rihanna, it is then. Okay, I'll have a calf, please. Cream and two sugars. Blue milk for me, thanks. Right away, sir. You know I hate eating the You worry too much. Besides, getting out of the safe house every now and then will do you some good. No, I, I hadn't heard about that, actually. Yeah, apparently the pilot was flying a recon mission over Talus. Rumor has it they were checking out some suspected Imperial activity around Keystone's spine. As soon as their sensor equipment started gathering data, the fighter goes down without a shot being fired. No one knows why. Well, what does the official report say? Get this. Simultaneous quadruple engine failure. I don't buy it. I don't either. Fortunately, the pilot managed to eject. Unfortunately, her mayday call went out over an open channel. So, the Imperials heard about it, too. I expect the garrison in Quaystar Town would have mobilized in short So, did they activate a local cell to pick her up, or did they call on a specialized search and rescue team from off-planet? Word has it they gave the job to some rookie recruits in the area. No way. Apparently there was no room to sell At least not that good So they sent in a team fresh out of recruit training. Their exact location is still classified. And with good reason. But if they launched from, say, Corellia, it could have taken 6 to 12 hours to sell 
They could have just made an in-system micro-jump, especially with an Imperial Task Force mobilizing. You'd think they'd be in a bigger hurry. I agree, which is why if it were me, I'd have made a micro-jump in-system. It'd be a hard task for whoever was navigating, but it would get them there much faster. Faster than anyone coming from the fleet, anyway. That is, of course, assuming these recruits know how to operate a navigator. Worst case, they botch the jump, and it takes them even longer to get to the crash site than a sublector. Imagine the despair on an overzealous pilot's face when he realizes that he's just blown his hyperdrive. That puts them at a serious disadvantage if they're racing the Ems to the crash site. I'd be more concerned about the local environment than the Imperials. What's to worry about? If I were leading them, we'd just fly in, offload some heavy assault speeders, and drive straight to the crash site, blasting anything that gets in our way. No. The surrounding forest would be much too dense for anything bigger than a speeder bike, and I highly doubt that a relatively new rebel cell would merit access to that kind of heavy equipment. No. If it were me, I'd insert them straight into the crash site with a low-altitude anti-grav shooting problem. What? That's crazy! It's not that crazy. I've seen some YV-929 gunships with modified loading ramps made for just such a purpose. They'd be fast enough to get into the hot zone, tough enough to take a few hits, and heavily armed enough to loiter until the team's ready for extraction. Of course, if the team went desperate, they could even jump off the cargo ramp of a tramp freighter. If the Imperials haven't arrived on scene yet, you could have the transport hover overhead to provide overwatch. So, let me get this straight. You would have your team jump out of a perfectly good freighter into a thick forest in a mountainous region and run the risk of the team missing the drop zone, getting scattered, or even injured on the way down? I hope you've got an athletic squad and a solid pilot. Here's your calf and your blue milk. Thank you. And I suppose you have a better idea? Yeah, actually. You land the team at the nearest possible landing site, even if it's a few clicks from the actual crash site. If you can't use assault vehicles or walkers, or if they're simply not available, then they can hump it on foot in a search party formation. I suppose a bunch of soldiers slogging their way through the forest in a search party formation would work, if you're trying to tell everyone in the system what you're doing. And I hope your rescue team has someone with significant survival skills. Between the topography, the sand panthers, and the darkness provided by the tree canopy, you're just as likely to get lost or attacked yourself. Tracking a pilot through that kind of terrain would be a daunting task at best. Worse if it's dark. Vigilance is the price of victory. See, quick insertion at the crash site is better. They can immediately secure any sensitive data, recover, wipe, or if all else fails, destroy the astronaut droid, and then deal with the searching for the pilot. Keep the guns quiet and maintain radio silence. Quick and quiet, that's the key. The Bothan spy enjoys sneaking around. Truly, I'm shocked. It's better than your search pattern plan, which falls apart when superior is right. Not entirely. Scout troopers shouldn't be as heavily armed as regular stormtroopers. And if you dig in at the crash site, you can hold their attention long enough with frag grenades and repeating blasters to allow your second squad to look for the pilot. No sneaking necessary. Besides, little victories like this matter. It's our duty to make sure that the citizens of the galaxy know that we can beat the Imperials in a straight-up fight. Assuming we're able to locate the pilot before the Imperials do, I would just have the squad switch to skirmish tactics, hit and fade, that sort of thing. We'd harry them until we were able to break contact and make it back to the LZ. 
It's our duty to make sure the rebellion stays alive by denying the Empire access to our intelligence assets. Besides, what if the pilot wasn't up to scratch? Rumor has it she was seriously injured with the injection. See, that's why if I were running the team, I'd have part of the squad set up an ambush near the crash site. That way, if the imps come sniffing around, they'll run into a whole lot of trouble. They'll be dead before they can respond. We can use the site as a rally The Kastertown garrison isn't that big, and we can hold them off long enough for the rest of the team to recover the pilot and treat our injuries. Your plan has one problem. There's no way they could extract themselves. You can't land a freighter or a troop transport on top of a crashed X-Wing. With my plan, we stick a stim pack in the pilot and drag her with us if we have to. She can soak in a back to tank when she gets back to the fleet. Your concern is touching, true. We get the entire team back to the LZ, run up the weighted ramp of our transport, and burn sky until we see star lines. Or Imperial fighters. That's just an opportunity to shoot them down. How would you get your team out of there without landing a ship? You just have to be imaginable. I'd use a cargo hoist to lift the squad and the transport one or two at a time as they stand on top of the next one. Or if they were really in a hurry, they could use their climbing gear and all attach individually to the outside of the ship as it hovers about a meter off the ground. Then, I would fly away in the safe spot where they can climb inside the safe and You are crazy. No, I'm just very good at what I Anyway, you wanted to talk about busting out some rebel POWs? Looks like that'll have to wait, buddy. This restaurant has suddenly gotten a little too imperial for my comfort. I see your point. Another time, then. Drinks are on me. Thanks for dropping by. Hope to see you soon. There you go. Hmm. Jex's Diner, first one out. A couple little audio issues aside. some Provide some good ideas for you to put some plot hooks into your game. Kind of cool. It's pretty different. Pretty different. I, I, I kind of like it. Felt a little long, but not too bad. I, I, I like the, the in-character conversation about uh, despair and setback and, and, and complications and all that other good stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a... Uh, yeah, I, I, I it's, it's just so, it's a, it's such a departure from like Skill Monkey, you know, where Skill Monkey got hardcore into, you know, what if I do this? What if I do that? What if I do this? What if I do that? This was more of an open based, hey, put this in here and, you know, here's how you're going to drag the pilot out or here's how you're going to, you can't land there or whatever. You know, it was just, I don't know. It's, it's, it's more open ended. So it's, it's, it's ideas. And I guess, and that's really what they're going for. So. But that being, I'm eager to hear more. I'm eager to hear more of what they've got. Yeah, yeah. So uh, good work, guys. Yes, absolutely good work. So, um, there is a little thing here called uh, listener feedback and such and whatever. So we have um, we have this. He doesn't seem to take a hint. This guy. I was beginning to wonder if you'd got my message. Messages from the Edge. Boy, am I glad to hear your voice. I think it would be wise if you took advantage of my knowledge in this instance. Ah, uh, yes, Messages from the Edge. This is, of course, our regular show segment where we 
answer your game and rules questions about the system. And, of course, how do you get us these questions? Well, the easiest way, of course, is to go to the forums and post it. The20radio.com slash forums. Register. Go to the D, go to the Order 66 podcast boards and find a Messages from the Edge thread. And then put it on in there. You usually will inspire some pretty good conversation. You can also email us. Sorry? Usually does. Yep, always. Email us. GM Chris, d20radio.com. Darth GM, GM Phil. What are you? Do you have? Do we give you a D20 radio? We have, yeah, haven't I'm GM, you? I'm, yeah, GM Phil at D20radio.com. Yeah, GM Phil, GM Dave, all at D20radio.com. Or if you're brave enough like these two listeners we're about to listen to, you can leave us a voicemail on the D20 radio hotline, 262-D20 radio, 262-320-7234. We have two listener questions. First, we have from Daryl, who we don't know if he has a brother Daryl or not, but his name is Daryl, and he brings us the following. I'm calling for GMs Phil and Chris of the Order 66 podcast. That is not us. Daryl from Windsor, Ontario. On your podcast, you've often advocated the creative use of skills. Uh, For instance, uh, maybe a scout wants to use his medicine skill proactively, so he prepares a drug cocktail that he'll apply to a character to bump a characteristic by one. Uh, that sounds like it'll have a hard difficulty check, and maybe it'll cause four points of strain. But then the doctor gets upset because he had to spend XP for stim application. Maybe Politico whips the crowd into a frenzy against the enemies in the encounter using leadership, but then the agitator flips out because he had to spend XP for incite rebellion. How do you reconcile the creative use of skills with talents? I actually kind of resent those talents now because I feel like they impede my options as a player. Thanks, Order 66. Also, I was hoping you could dedicate a show to the late game. How do you challenge players who have amassed good gear and tons of XP? Thanks a lot. Bye. Boy, it's funny that he added that at the end because we kind of addressed that last show. <laughs> but to be fair, he actually sent it right before the last show and we didn't have time to get it in. He did. He, in fact, did. Uh, very good question, Daryl. Very good question. Uh, and, and you're right. It, it does sometimes impede. You, you want to be as creative as you possibly can with those results of, um, triumphs and, and advantages and even just outright successes. But you also don't want to trample over a guy who has spent hard earned XP to do so. Um, in these instances, what I would do is, first of all, make the effect nowhere near as good as the uh, the outright talent. Or maybe not nowhere near, just but don't make it as good as the talent. So, for example, the guy who wants to use a drug cocktail to boost their stats up and give them bonuses to uh, uh, you know either one of their characteristics or something like that, do that. But instead of actually boosting the characteristic, maybe give them a boost die. To skill checks made with that characteristic, you could try that as well. Yeah. Now that's that's something that you can do if you're kind of planning for it up front. If if or, or rather if you're coming up with the end result, something to spend the triumph and 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 uh, advantage on. If someone's trying to attempting to do this and they're not possessing one of those talents, I would definitely beef up the beef up the difficulty. Don't make it a hard check. Make it a, a formidable check. Four dice, you know. Right. Make it more difficult. Add setback dice. Add this. Add that. Make them. Don't say no, but 
make it make it harder because they don't have the training. They don't. Ha- they have. Yeah, exactly. The XP. Who do you think you are, Leonard McCoy? Here's a black die. <laughs> uh, Fish, any good uh, any good advice on that question? Uh, I mean, you pretty much covered it. Actually, you hit on both of the the pieces of both recommendations. I would make. Our C GM Phil developer. <laughs> you guys hiring? <laughs> Not at the moment. <laughs> keep All right, keep watch keep watching the Fantasy Flight website. You never know. Never, you know. never know. Yes, that's right. Okay, we have a second one now from Ursano Greenstrike, and he has this question. Hello, erstwhile GMs, Chris and Phil. I have a question about obligations that are inherent to a character instead of imposed upon them. Certain obligations feel more like character traits, such as obsession, adrenaline junkie, and philanderer. Wouldn't they be better represented as motivations instead? When does it make sense for a personality obligation to increase or decrease? Can they only get resolved through play itself instead of mechanically? I ask because one of my players has an obsession with finding a specific ancient relic. Should I encourage them to make that a motivation instead, so that they're given a permanent reward when they follow their character arc? Or should the party's obligation stay high simply because a single PC can't pursue a given goal that can't be resolved by throwing credits at it? I'm eager to hear your thoughts. Sex in advance, Rosano Greenstripe. Of course, sex in advance. Naturally, thank you. Now, to be fair, Dave, to address one question first of all, you hadn't been on the show for a couple months. When oh, I know, these I know, I know, I know. There's that's <laughs> that is not a problem, you know. Poor Dave. Yeah, it's all right. It's it's okay. Um, but you know what? I I have an I have an opinion on this matter. Fire away. In that the obligations and motivations to me are very are very very different, right? So he mentioned the adrenaline junkie. The adrenaline junkie. You know, you're seeking. You're you're actively seeking this this thrill this rush right and that to me doesn't fit into a belief a, collect, a connection or a quest you know right. when when it comes to motivation you know like i'm motivated because let's say for example i want to fight crime i am motivated by honor or justice or something along those lines i can see how he thinks it bleeds in a little bit like um like the adrenaline junkie might maybe be into glory or I, you know, I, I just don't know where it would fit exactly. So I, I think, I think motivations are very, very different than your obligations. The, the motivations in, when they compare to obligations, when they have similar bents, it really comes from the fact of, are, as you said, Dave, are you motivated to do something because of personal interest or are you motivated to do something because of external influences? And that's what obligations are to me. Right. So someone who is an adrenaline junkie, they're, there's something in their wiring, just in their head, the way their mind works that isn't satisfied until they're risking their lives attempting something. And when they're not doing that, they're actually edgy. They're, they're off their game. That, and, and that's, that's in, given to them by either setback dice or, or reductions in strain threshold. Someone who's got a philanthropist for, or, or, or a benefactor for a, and as an obligation, they're expecting you to do something for them. And the size of the obligation that you have to them it is a definitive of how much influence they have over you. 
Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, yeah. So, I, I don't now, know. The, the beauty of keeping or, or having these things as obligations as well as means it means they ebb and flow with the over the course of play. So, you know, if, if you have an addiction, say, um, you know, maybe one session, you know, that addiction is, is really hitting you hard, you know, and that, that's represented when you have a lot of obligation in that. And, you know, maybe you do something to kind of, you know, uh, uh, sate that addiction or, you know, just kind of control it. And then your obligation lowers. And so it's less likely to come up again. And so it kind of gets to ebb and flow even internally. Um, and, you know, for, for things like that, uh, if, if you have it, if a player has that as an obligation, maybe when that obligation reaches a value of zero, that obligation isn't gone. That addiction is still there. It's just sitting there and it, but it's contributing nothing to the total group's obligation currently because you have it under control, but it may come back. Right. I get that. Phil? Did we lose Phil again? I think we might have lost him. Wow. Goodbye, Phil. See you later, Phil. Again. Well, yeah, so, I mean, bottom line, external versus internal motivation. External would be more like obligation. Internal would be more like motivation. And you're talking about specific things that drive you that are... Uh, specific quest or specific connections, that sort of thing. Whereas, you know, you are running from someone with a bounty. That is an obligation. You know, that's external. So I hope that answered your question, Ursano. Now, Ursano actually, Ursano actually brought up an interesting point where he talks about someone who has an addiction or a drive to go and find a specific item. Oh, right. And what happens when they find that item? Well, then you change the obligation. Right. It's no longer an addiction or, or, or a, a, a compulsion or obsession to find the item. Now it's a compulsion to keep it safe. Well, I was, yeah, and I was going to say, once you find that item, that obligation is gone. You know, you have fulfilled it. You, you have that item now. So you're down to zero obligation on that specific one. But if your group is anything like mine and like most of our playtesters, in the process of fulfilling that obligation, you've stacked up like two more. Yeah. <laughs> there's something else has happened. Exactly. It's, it's, it's my precious and somehow it gets knocked out of your hand and you have to go find it again. Or in the course of trying to find the thing that you you were looking for, you ran up a debt with a hut. Yes, all of a sudden, and you have to, yes, of course. So there's always ebb and flow. Uh, okay, so um, we have some questions from the forums. Excellent. Ooh, yeah. Uh, let's see. First one comes from Kelbar, who says, Hi, all of Order 66 community. My group is My group of six is, at the moment running through the Age of Rebellion beginner box. This is giving me some time to homebrew some campaign ideas. Looking at old, looking at the Old Republic campaign, how do people deal with duty and obligation when playing in a non-Rebellion era game? And any pitfall I need to watch out for? Any tips would be welcome. Uh, well, Kelbar, the, the advice that I'm sure that Andy will probably say is you use duty and obligation as you would normally. <laughs> right. Yeah, the beauty of the Old Republic is it actually has uh, a few different power structures that duty works perfect for, uh, different organizations. Uh, you know, you, you've got, like, the Republic military. Um, you have potentially, like, this, depending on what part of the Old Republic you're playing in, you have, like, the Sith Empire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can even argue it for being like the for the Jedi Order, even really. Yeah. Yeah. 
any 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 command structure, right? Like Mandalorians and all that jazz. And I suppose that the, the first thing to do is figure out if you need duty in the first place. It's a great mechanic to use if you are belonging to a large organization that has a hierarchy and resources to grant your players benefits as they rise in reputation and, and commendations. Now, if you're playing in the Old Republic era, era, you can use duty if you're fighting for the Republic, as we've mentioned, possibly even the Jedi, or any other military-styled organization with a defined command structure. Sith Empire, as Andy said, possibly the Mandalorians... But unless the large parent group is there, you really don't need to use the duty mechanic. I mean, if you're, if you're just out and freebooting around like you would, say, a Edge of the Empire-themed group, you probably wouldn't use duty too much. Or maybe you have one character who's sort of like a field agent or, or an independent liaison who, uh, who has their own duty mechanic with, within the structure, that, within the organization that they belong to. Yeah. If you're all mercs in a small independent group, you probably won't need it. Just go with obligation. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and use obligation. And the beauty and uh, the beauty of obligation and Edge of the Empire is that setting fits in basically any era you want. You know, there are always going to be that style of people out there. Every era. Every single one. Yes. And we oh. got one more, don't we, Dave? We have one last question. It's from John Fisto, and he says. Hey, long-time never-listener of the podcast. He has, a, he has a question about piloting, piloting space specifically. The rule books give this example of using the skill. During a space conflict, pilots may jockey for position to determine which shields face the enemy and which weapons may be brought to bear. When opponents attempt to neg- negate these efforts, the winner is identified through an opposed piloting space check. I know this isn't the same as gain the advantage action, but does anyone have an example of using the skill in this way? For example, since normally a defender chooses which zone is targeted by an attack, would a successful use of this by an attacker allow attacks from the pilot's ship to choose which enemy's defense zone is targeted, even without the pilot gaining the advantage? For example, on ships that are too large or can't go fast enough to gain the advantage. Or is this use of the skill more narrative in nature? For example, the enemy's starboard turrets seem to be damaged, make an opposing pilot space check to jockey into a position where only those turrets could target you. Now, Andy, isn't this kind of exactly referring to the uh, gain the advantage action? Uh, yeah, that's, uh, you know, we're, we're just kind of trying to be helpful for like a teaching tool in those bullets. But yes, that is referring to the gain the advantage. Um, however, there might be an instance, um, I can't come up with one off the top of my head, where you don't want to use gain the advantage, but you want to have somebody kind of jockey for position in a different way. Um, sure. I mean, gain the advantage is very broad to kind of try to cover all of those bases. So hopefully it'll work for you no matter what. But if you're finding it doesn't work for you, feel free to just throw a straight skill check at them. Um, you know, the tools are there for you to use them uh, in whatever way you need to represent your story. There you go. Easy. See? But yeah, the narrative suggestions the guy makes are solid as well, you know? And, yeah. uh, you know, they're they're fitting. You know, if they're, as Andy said, you know, you don't necessarily have to gain the advantage. You can jockey for position. So, you know, kind of play it by ear. Do what... Do as a GM what you think you should, and and you know maybe uh, uh, add a boost die or setback depending on 
what it is the guy wants to do and, and you know, go with it. It's why we have game masters for crying out loud. Ah, yes. Yeah, and the more comfortable you feel with the system, the more you can feel free to just, you know, play with it how you want. Like, in my sessions that I run for fun and not testing, um, I just do all sorts of crazy things. I'm like, well, you know, for this check, you know, we're going to have you just roll your side of the pool, and then we're, I'm going to write down how many success and advantage you get and, like, use it that number later for things. Or in this one, we're going to use this weird characteristic and this weird skill together that no, don't normally combine. Just do whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I want to play in one of those games. Well, Andy, um, just before we finally wrap things up here, I just want to say that I want to give my thanks to you and your guys and your team for this book. I haven't wanted to play a Rebellion-era game this much since 1997. (laughs) Well, good. Uh, We're glad, and uh, thank you for playing. And and, and everybody out there listening, thank you guys for playing and being fans and uh, participating in the community. Dave! Sad panda music. Sad panda music. That brings us to the end of yet another show. It does. Which is going to be very interesting because somehow we're going to have to sign off without the three of us here. But, you know... We'll manage. We will manage. And, you know... what? It is, it is, it is what it is. But anyway, you guys, come become a, na- uh, a member of the Gamer Nation. Join us over at d20radio.com slash forums. Register and post up. Leave us a liner. Tell us why you never listen to the Order 66 podcast. And we haven't been getting near enough of those. And you can do that by calling 262-D20-RADIO. 262-320-7234. Or you can email us if you produce your own liner and email us. I'm GM Dave at d20radio.com. He's GM Phil at d20radio.com. And the other guy is GM Chris at d20radio.com, who's maybe listening on a plane right now, for all we know. Who knows? Possibly. 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 But if he's flying American, it's not going to be good enough to hold a signal, so sorry. Yeah. Folks, we got a lot of topics in the pipeline. Uh, we'll be setting up our next few shows, and I'm really excited for some of the topics we got. But if there- Yeah. What he was really going to say was... If there's anything that's on your mind, just post or give us a call <laughs> because we lost Phil again. <laughs> Andy, you got me? I, I'm still here. Don't yeah, worry. Poor Phil. He's just, he's just, a, he's a, he's a slave to his poor internet connection. Poor guy. Oh, that's too bad. Anyway, so, um, with, for, for lack of, of anything better, um, we're going to say, um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say, you know, this is GM Dave and I'm wishing you peace, love and good gaming. Keep them dice rolling and whatever it is that Phil says. <laughs> and then feel free to say bye, Andrew. Goodbye, everyone. And this is GM <laughs> Phil saying listening. I'm going to hey. firebomb my modem. There you go. He's <laughs> back. Oh, New just, just, a, yeah, I'm going <laughs> to. Keep them dice rolling and firebomb Phil's modem. There you are.
This podcast and related website are not endorsed by Lucasfilm Limited, the Walt Disney Corporation, 20th Century Fox, or Fantasy Flight Games. It is intended for educational and informational purposes only. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, all names, pictures, or references to any Star Wars vehicles, characters, or other Star Wars-related items are registered trademarks of Lucasfilm Limited, Fantasy Flight Games, or their respective trademark or copyright holders. All original content of this podcast, including any audio, visual, or textual information, is the intellectual property of the Order 66 Podcast and the Gamer Nation, LLC. Thank you.